I am the least inclined to get distanced out of most leaders people would talk to because I will remain in love with the customer and with the frontline employee and never forget that nothing happens without that, right? That's where the magic happens. And so, no, I will not be distanced. (laughs) Welcome to Redefiners, a podcast designed for daring leaders who are changing what it means to lead in today's increasingly complex world. I'm Nanas Motoshami, a leadership advisor at Russell Reynolds Associates. And I'm Clark Murphy, the former chief executive and also a leadership advisor. Banaz and I have spent our careers exploring what works and what's next in the realm of leadership. In each episode, we ask our guests deep and provocative questions about how they've challenged the norms and how they've redefined their organizations and ultimately themselves as leaders. Also, you can answer this one question. How are you redefining your leadership? Perhaps the boldest question yet. Conversations that matter. Inspiration for us all, whether you're kicking off your career or crafting your legacy. Thanks for joining us. Let's dive in. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Redefiners. Unfortunately, Nanaz is not able to join us today, but I'm excited to have a special co-host, a partner and great friend of mine, Jenna Fisher. She's a managing director in our Palo Alto office and the author of To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success. Jenna, thanks for being on Redefiners. Well, First of all, Clark, I'm a huge fan of Redefiners, and I'm very excited to be here, and I'm even more excited about our guest today. She is an inspiring leader with an impressive track record of driving organizational scale and leading through challenging times. She and I got to talk at length during the process of writing my book. I'm psyched to learn from her and listen. Well, our guest today is none other than the digital marketing genius, Kat Cole, who's currently the COO and president of Athletic Greens. And before that, she had a 10-year tenure at Focus Brands, most famous for Cinnabon, where she served as president and COO, and she led the company's eight brands with over 7,000 operations globally. Today, she's a business advisor, a speaker, a board member, and I think you're going to find, Clark, her passion and abilities are just infectious, and we're thrilled to have her here with us today. Well, we have two people with infectious personalities on here. I hope the, <laughs> the bandwidth can take it. Kat, welcome to Redefiners. Thank you for having me. We're fascinated by what's going on today, and particularly the consumer in a rapidly changing world. But if you don't mind, can we back up? You're, you're so well known for tech-forward consumer brands, the kind of very webby 2.0 but you started somewhere very different. Could you take us back to the beginning of your journey and how that helped form the leader you are today? Sure. I grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm the oldest of three girls, and I was raised by a single mom. When I was nine years old, my mom came to me and said, that's it, I'm done, we're leaving. And what she meant was we were leaving my father, who was and is a very good man, but at the time was an alcoholic and a terrible husband and father. And It was very challenging for my mom. Our families were very poor on both sides of the family. So my mom didn't have many resources or any access to support. So she navigated the situation the best she could for many years and then decided it was better to take the leap into the unknown uh, of how would she support these three girls on her own than to continue. And a formative moment was that day that she told me. Because when she said, we're leaving. I did not cry and I did not get upset. I looked at her at the age of nine 
and said some version of what took you so long or finally. And the lesson in that, as I've reflected in my later years, is that the people who are closest to the action, in this case, the child seeing things up close or in business, the hourly employee, the call center, the sales team, the truck drivers, the people who are closest to the action know what the right thing to do is often and almost always long before the leader makes the call. And upon realizing how formative that moment was, I became a bit obsessed with staying close to the action of not letting there be too large of a gap of time or space or knowledge between me as I took on leadership roles and the action or the transaction or the front line. From that point, we did leave. My mom fed us on a food budget of $10 a week for three years. Uh, She worked multiple jobs. And so I had additional formative experiences, seeing her leadership, her grit, her resourcefulness. And that started to show up in how I operated as a young professional. As a result of being uh, not financially well-off, I started working at a very young age. I worked in malls at the age of 15 and 16. I became a hostess at 17. I was the first person in my family to be admitted to college on either side of the family. And I then became a waitress at 18, my senior year in high school to save up and pay my way through college. The company that I was working with as an hourly employee, as a hostess and a waitress was growing uh, domestically and internationally. I started taking on additional hourly leadership roles in order to both pay the bills and feed my own curiosity of what it would be like to work in other jobs. I had no desire at the time to become a restaurant executive or a restaurant manager. Uh, It was really about just paying the bills and learning. Yet, ironically, working all those jobs in the restaurant set me up to have a resume that made me a candidate to be a part of international opening teams. So at the age of 19, I was offered the chance to go to Sydney, Australia and launch a franchise in Australia. I'd never been on a plane. I did not have a passport. I'd only been out of the state of Florida twice in my life for cheerleading and track competitions, and I had never opened a restaurant. But I still said yes. I went to Sydney, stayed there for almost 40 days, changed my life, came back, thought who would ever give a girl like me a chance like that again. I made up the college courses that I missed and then was offered more opportunities to travel internationally. Play that out in that following year, was on many continents, launching the first of the franchise. And as a result, I was failing college. So I dropped out that year at the age of 20, took a corporate job at the parent company who said, hey, we're growing all over the world. We need people who know how to do these jobs all over the world to help us organize more of these openings and employee training moved to Atlanta uh, at the age of 20 to become employee training coordinator. And then fast forward, I took a different role in the company every 18 to 24 months. By the time I was 26, I was one of the vice presidents in the company when we were doing around 800 million in annual revenue and uh, stayed in an executive capacity in many vice president roles over the course of six additional years and then became president of Cinnabon, turned that business around, then became group president of that parent company, Focus Brands, and then president and COO of the parent company. And I was at Focus Brands for 10 years. Took a year to advise and then ended up at Athletic Greens, where I am today. 
Kat, you know, I really resonate with your story on so many levels. And I think I shared this with you when we were talking about my book, but my mom grew up in a family with an alcoholic father. And so from as early an age as I can remember, she always drilled into my head two things. One, you can be whatever you want to be. And B, you need to be able to financially stand on your own two feet because you really can't rely upon other people. And I think that really informed my work ethic from a young age. I remember one other thing that really impressed me in our conversation was how you've learned how to take the emotion out of salary negotiations and really knowing your worth. And even when you were going into a role at Focus Brands, the head of strategy, I believe it was, where nobody had ever held that job before, it wasn't like there were a lot of data points in the market about what you should be paid, you had a really analytic framework for how to think about that. And I see a lot of people in the work I do who are a bit timid about negotiating on their own behalf. Unfortunately, it's often women who feel that way. And I'm just curious, what advice do you have for people, especially women, who might be feeling a little bit hamstrung in that regard? Of course, no one just shows up into the professional setting with all the knowledge and context and seasoning and expertise that they need to fully optimize their compensation. No one. And so one thing that helped was just talking to people about it often, which in and of itself is considered either taboo or some people, often women, might hesitate. And so, of course, the more conversations, the more inputs, the more data points, and the more perspective one has, then it not only increases competence, like actual knowledge of what's going on in the marketplace, but also ease and peace and confidence. And that also plays well in any type of a negotiation or conversation. So my first tip that isn't over-architecting any frameworks is just talk to people and learn and listen and let that color your thinking. And I certainly did that. And that gave me a bit of ease and comfort because it gave me a sense of ranges. You know, what were some lows and what were some highs? And then how did that connect to experience in the role versus just the value for the work? And I triangulated numbers in my own mind. And so I remember when I took my first COO and president role. So I was leaving a company after having been there for 14 years. My first time having a conversation about a salary and I was interviewing for the president role. And I was very grounded in some truths. One, I was 25 to 30 years younger than any other person in a similar role. And that doesn't mean anything in terms of age, but quite simply, the people who were my peers had been in business almost longer than I had been alive. And so you just, you know, you how, how do you not appreciate that they have more experience than you do? And so I was grounded in that if there were a range, that there were many reasons for me to be on the low end of the range. And while I didn't want to set my floor lower than I should, because these are only a few times in a career opportunities to reset the floor. Um, I had a humility in my approach and always have, yet I also won't let a company, whether or not that is their intention, take advantage of the fact that while I may have less experience, I'm likely going to have far more hunger, energy, scrappiness, resourcefulness, and break the mold of what has frustrated them in the past with more traditional candidates. I remember meeting with the CEO and I said, I, I know that there are two areas that I will oversee, traditional finance and supply chain, where my technical expertise is on the lighter end relative to where I way over index and operating and marketing and franchising and international. 
And so are you prepared? What is the plan to ensure that I am well-resourced in these areas? How will you support me in these areas? Because I know candidates perfect. So the question isn't, how do you think about me as a less than perfectly well-rounded seasoned candidate, but rather for any candidate, what is your plan to resource the areas where I under-index and I will lean into helping the company really experience step change in leadership in the areas where I over-index? So it just was a different tone of the conversation. It wasn't coming from a place of weakness. It was coming from a place of like practicality of resource allocation of the company. So yes, I need access to a very strong finance professional. And if the supply chain leader isn't strong, let's make sure that, that we get one. So that was one. The second was saying, and this applied in my approach to my salary change when I moved from president of Cinnabon to group president, from group president to president and COO of the parent company, where I said, look, to your point, these are completely new roles. There is no benchmark. The things that would contribute to a benchmark are all over the place. I'm going to be running a more uncertain business that has higher upside, but with fewer people. And so that, that's a wonky shift. Normally, it just everything's bigger. And so you can argue for bigger leaps in compensation. And so I said, here's what I think the, the base and the bonus and the equity compensation shift should be. I believe that you'll do the right thing. And what's important for me is to feel valued. And I know that you'll ensure that I do. Let's make sure that there is not one moment where compensation is a concern and a distraction for me. And that allowed the CEO to be my biggest advocate, to lean toward the higher end of an experimental roles range. And I was thrilled. I love that rubric. And I think knowledge is power. And I know when Clark and I are talking to both clients and candidates here at Russell Reynolds, we often think about compensation as a multifaceted arena. And to your point, Kat, it's not black or white, especially when you have a new innovative role that there aren't a ton of data points around. But I think, you know, really thinking about what is market and, and how do you define that as a really important element. I think you also need to take into account where the person's coming from, internal compression issues at the company. And then there's sort of just an emotional, psychological element of what am I willing to get out of bed in the morning to do? And you have to put all those in a proverbial martini shaker and, and shake them up. But I love the way you've approached it. Kat, you had this non-traditional approach. Uh, two questions. Did your mother second guess that her child who'd gotten into college probably was doing well, then said, <laughs> I'm out of here. And think about your own children or, or my children. What did mom say? And then what do you say as a mom or as, a, as an executive? My mom did not love it. She was disappointed, but she could tell that I was thriving in almost every sense of the word. I was happy, I was challenged, I was learning, I was traveling around the world, and I was independent. And Jenna, much like your mom, my mom's singular objective for her children, and she made it known, was that we be independent. Not even happy. <laughs> independent. And so while she was disappointed, because certainly higher education has been, and I believe still is, one way to optimize your opportunity, it should be pursued. It just happened that I had something that was creating greater opportunity. And so I got comfortable with it very quickly and she did as well. And so for my own children who are now three and five, so far away from that moment, but my husband and I have talked about it. Certainly the landscape is changing. And so I break it down into its parts. One, again, for anyone 
pursuing higher education, especially in a cohort with community, with faculty, where you can learn and develop relationships and explore true real world scenarios, but with academic underpinning is a noble and worthwhile pursuit. And at the same time, it is no longer the only way. And so if you have access to other real world opportunities that provide both knowledge and experience that can complement or replace what you might otherwise receive, then that could be the path. So there's just more optionality now in pursuing both knowledge and experience that could lead someone down whatever their professional path is going to be. You talk about the three A's, ask, answer, act. How does that apply into this sense of optionality? Ask, answer, act is this grouping, three things, two without one, is not a complete formula for consistent growth. You can ask a lot of questions, but if they aren't answered in a relevant way, or if there's no action, you're just a student. And you can believe you have all the answers, but you're a bull in a porcelain shop and may get things done in the short term as a leader, but likely won't have teams that follow you over time. And you can go around giving people answers and advice, but that's not a builder. You know, that's not actually creating impact. And so I've learned that the moments when I'm driving the most personal, professional, or enterprise growth is when there's this steady, repeated cycle of ask, answer, act, ask, answer, act. And certainly that means I'm not beholden to a particular practice or formula or structure or business model. So that in and of itself creates and feeds optionality. Um, It also evidences that I have zero expectation or belief that change should be led alone. The simple art of asking and answering implies the existence of others. There's a humility and curiosity to that, but act is bias for action. There's a courage and a confidence. So it's permission to change, if not an obligation to change, even if things are kind of cozy. So interesting. Kat, just as you were preparing to leave Focus Brands and step down as president and COO, the pandemic hit. And at the same time, your baby daughter became dangerously ill and yet you stayed on. I'm curious, why did you stick it out at such a difficult time? And how did those difficulties affect your leadership style? I was offered an opportunity to join a private equity firm. And that seemed to me, given my background, just the coolest and fanciest opportunity. I mean, private equity seemed just so cool coming from operating restaurants around the world. So it felt like a dream. And I remember when I got the phone call being offered the opportunity. I'd gone through the psychologist's intellectual rigor and testing and interviewed with all the partners and negotiated the salary and understood the opportunity in the role. I was so excited. And the day I got the phone call offering me the opportunity, the same day, just hours prior, I learned we had to sell our company. We were embroiled in an estate battle. It had been a privately held enterprise. The CEO had died. The estate had drug on and the judge, uh, the probate judge ruled that we must liquidate the most valuable asset in the estate, which happened to be the company. And very similarly, while I had visions of what was next and excitement about something that would help me break out of that chapter of my life, it 
I mean, there's no good time to leave, but that felt like a horrible time to leave. And no one in the company was well-suited to navigate this transaction. The franchisees didn't love the previous leader, but they were even more afraid of the unknown on the other side of a fire sale into private equity. The executive team had experienced a lot of turnover after the CEO's passing. And it, it's one of those moments where you just know what the right thing to do is. I need to stay. I need to help shepherd the company through this. I don't even know what this means. I was going back to business school um, nights and weekends. And so I don't have a bachelor's, but I do have a master's in international business. And so I felt that I, I was getting enough academic knowledge at the time to apply real world to the transaction the company was about to go through and the relationships with the team and the franchisees to help protect truly people who had become like an extended family. I mean, I was there for 14 years since I was 17 years old. And, and so I declined the private equity opportunity. And it's one of those, when you do the right things for the right reasons, the right things often happen. And I ended up presenting to 16 private equity firms in the sale process, many of which reached out to recruit me. And that same private equity firm ended up reaching out and saying, hey, we know you can't come right now for this opportunity in the firm, but we think you should interview to be president of one of our portfolio companies. And that was Cinnabon. And so fast forward, when I'm at Focus Brands and I have planned to leave and I have coordinated my departure with the CEO and then the company changes the CEO, uh, the private equity firm had a transition in CEO. And within two weeks of him starting, which was around the time I was supposed to be departing, not only is there a new CEO, I would have stayed to help him transition no matter what. And COVID starts shutting down our locations in Asia long before it hit the US. So it was the exact same feeling in the moment that there's not a good time to leave, but this is a terrible time and the company needs me. Whether that's true or not, maybe it's ego, maybe it's feel, you know desiring meaning in a difficult time, but truly like the CEO doesn't know this industry, this business. He doesn't even know where the bathrooms are and that wouldn't matter because the buildings are shut down anyway talk about an unprecedented collision of events. And so that I had already decided I'm staying. Then two and a half months later, when it really was hitting the US, uh, end of February, beginning of March, my daughter became gravely ill. And I was in the ICU with her. She was seven months old for many weeks. And I just remember these moments of having the AirPods in and dealing with stressed out, freaking out franchisees around the world, dealing with unprecedented customer challenges because of debates around masks and opening hours and dine-in or not. And it was really mayhem, truly. And franchisees, small business owners, many of them, not all, look to a franchisor for leadership, for practices, for policy, for guidance. And what shifted was we just became the chief question asker and doing the best to provide answers and helping them navigate the Hunger Games. That was the search for gloves and sanitizer at the time. And, and so that's going on in my ears and in my head while my heart is living outside my body. I don't know if I ever again will feel that much mama bear energy where you look over your shoulder and there's no one else. There's no one else to do the job. There's no one else to do the work. Yet I feel the weight and the heaviness and the sadness and the challenges of the unknown, just like everyone else. I'm human. I'm in tears almost every night, not rocking in a corner sobbing, but just exhausted, sad, worried, feeling the weight of my family, the world, the company. Yet I also was so 
proud that it was me, grateful that it was me in that role, helping to navigate that time. So I stayed all through 2020, helping to navigate that season and the other many, many challenging dynamics that would occur globally and in the United States in that same year as the year progressed. My daughter got better, brought her home. She had a feeding tube at home. I remember talking to franchisees and her yanking it out, trying to stuff it back in there. You know, it kind of reminded me of the moments with my mom where your limits show you what you're capable of. And it's all, for the most part, in your mind of what you can handle. And yet I was very human. I cried on many calls. I told people I didn't know the answers. I asked for help when I needed it so I could take care of my family and prioritize my child. And you know, and then we got into uh, a rhythm and things got better with my daughter and things got better with the company and then things got better with the industry. And I could work with the leadership team for one last moving around of the structure of the company to set it up for growth and then uh, transition out into a really exciting year that would follow. I've never, very fortunately, have four children been in the ICU. But I will say, as the chief executive in COVID, and particularly the first months, I did feel the weight of the world and the exhaustion. And I have two moments. One, the people you didn't know were leaders who stepped up in many different ways, or your lessons about leaders who crumbled and, and couldn't carry the weight, and then you had to adjust in the middle of both. You, you very nicely talk about the positives, but you also must have had some franchisees or regional leaders who crumbled and you had to step up even more. I, I found that brutal as a leader. One skill I have learned and continue to pursue excellence in over time is holding two seemingly contrasting things in my mind. Two things can be true. And there were some franchisees or leaders who, to your point, in an environment of radical uncertainty, full demand shock, no precedent or playbook, become very different people. They are lost. And their behaviors demonstrate that. And so I I can see that. I can empathize with it. I appreciate that not everyone navigates change in the same way. I could also see in those same moments, although I could appreciate why their behaviors or lack of leadership showed up in the way that it did, I also have to recognize it has to be navigated. And that might have meant something such as a conversation with someone saying, you're not helping. You're making things worse. Here are the conditions that have changed and how our roles must shift at least temporarily. And I need your partnership in that. It's not helpful to tell me the 8 million things that are complicated in your world. We are having a shared, a shared experience here where every zip code is navigating this in a different way. So I can't give you a corporate policy. I can help you navigate how to ask and answer the questions and do what's best with a beautiful blend of hyper-local and protecting the brand. Um, And similarly with some leaders who... It didn't take long, but it was more than a minute for them to adjust to the new speed of, we're talking every day. The answer is different every day. The resources are different every day. And it's just a hustle and a grind. And some people who were used to that larger mass corporate enterprise cadence really struggled pulling forward their inner entrepreneur. And then to your point, there were others who chaos is their jam And they rose to the occasion and were incredible enablers at that time. 
if nothing, you know, the COVID moment has taught us about what I call the empathy gene and seeing leaders who either had it, worked to discover it, or failed at it. And I think this, you know, a whole nother podcast is about the changing nature of leadership and how these three or five years have impacted the kind of successful leader out there today, which I think has the empathy gene and probably is much more collaborative, et cetera. But we often ask here about redefining moments. I mean, you are an executive of grit who has shifted and roll with it. I'm sure you're tired of being complimented, but you know, you rolled with your life and you've maximized it. Is there any single or a couple of redefining moments for you? Certainly my mom leaving my father. I know exactly what my life would look like if she had not left because there are many family members who have that life. And her singular courageous decision to move into the unknown created the opportunity for everything that followed. Another redefining moment would be the work around evolving Cinnabon as a brand. When I took over as president, we were in the heart of the Great Recession. It was a mall-based business um, that was losing some cultural relevance and the business model was quite broken and it deeply needed new innovation channels and complete renovation of the legacy business model. And the decisions that we made in my first six months radically altered the course of that business for the better and actually became the template for the way I would help lead the leaders of the other brands to bring brands to market over time. And so whether it was the saying yes to the opportunity or the decisions within it, that was quite redefining and certainly becoming a mother, major redefiner, and doing what some might have thought was not intuitive, but to me was the obvious choice, going not to bigger, bigger, bigger businesses, but to something modern, health-focused, mission-driven, and hyper-growth by jumping to AG. That is the latest of the redefining decisions. You're an operator. Like, it's under your skin. You can see it in your eyes. And then you became a leader of leaders, which is a very different trajectory. Do you miss having the operations under your skin? And you knew the market because you knew the customer. And now you're teaching your leaders to know the customer. Are you losing contact (laughs) as a leader with the customer? Well, if I draw on my earlier lessons, these pivotal moments that I mentioned, I am the least inclined to get distanced out of most leaders people would talk to because I will remain in love with the customer and with the frontline employee and never forget that nothing happens without that, right? That's where the magic happens. And so, no, I will not be distanced. (laughs) And yet that actually makes, to your point, leading of leaders sometimes more challenging Yeah, because I get more in the weeds than even some of the mid-level leaders might be accustomed to. So the trick is building the right culture around that to know and understand and expect and even appreciate that I am going to stay very close to the action. Even, you know, later this week, I've got multiple back-to-back customer calls with customers of AG, our AG1 community. And I will talk to them and I obsess over our reviews channel and I read almost every tweet and post that our customers make, even if people are making a joke about us. I mean, I am eating, sleeping, breathing, swimming in all things customer-centered. And those who are closest to our customer 
but building a culture around that where that is healthy and not reaching to uh, an approach where it's unhealthy, which would look like me doing someone else's job for them because I'm reaching around and disempowering. The key is to use that knowledge to actually then anchor and lead and create that similar obsession with today's customer, not, not the report that came out last year, not the feedback session we did or the focus group two quarters ago today. The world just moves so fast and our customers are on a journey and we come in and out of their lives. But for many of them, we stay in their lives. And so understanding how that changes uh, is critical. And so for me, the key is building a culture where people are generally equally obsessed with staying close to the action. So then the natural layers of leadership can play their part as opposed to having it imbalanced or feel like micromanagement or mistrust. You need to come to the Russell Reynolds Partners meeting and talk about culturally being customer obsessed. I love it. Love it. (laughs) And speaking of moving fast, we always end our Redefiners podcast with a few rapid fire questions if you're game, Kat. Yeah. Okay, let's go. What is something you make sure to do every day? Oh, wake up, brush my teeth, drink my AG1. (laughs) AG1 starts my day. I choose my health. I put the scoop in water. I shake it. I drink it. In 60 seconds, I have at least set my body on a great path and chosen myself first thing in the morning. What's the best piece of advice you've been given? Some version of what my mom used to write on my birthday cards that I've morphed, but it's don't forget where you came from, but don't you ever let it solely define you. And I further go on to interpret the advice as our truth is in our roots, but our past should not be our anchor. And I apply that to myself, constant growth, my businesses, my relationship. What is your favorite guilty pleasure snack food? I love a delicious, perfectly executed with latte art, Breve Cappuccino. All the fat made with half and half, (laughs) milk from a cow. It's amazing. (laughs) I love it. When you're preparing tough questions, who do you run those questions by first? If it's not something I've done often with a group with whom I'm familiar then of course I'll use sounding boards, um, mentors, people with knowledge of either the individuals or the situation if I'm new to it to make sure I'm not tone deaf or blind to context that I should have. What is the most important quality you look for when bringing someone onto your team? I would not pick one, but there's a combination of four that I think everything falls under. And it is humility, curiosity, courage, and confidence. And the biggest mistakes I've seen individuals make in their personal or professional lives, certainly I am included, is when one over-indexes or under-indexes in a way that is not fit for the moment. Some moments require a tremendous amount of courage as the tip of the spear. And other moments require deep, deep, thoughtful curiosity as the tip of the spear. doesn't mean the others aren't there, but what's, what's needed in the moment and, and remembering that ebbs and flows from situation to situation, moment to moment. Well, Kat, thank you so much for being here. We have an expression in the Murphy family that life is straight with crooked lines. And you found your crooked lines to an amazingly straight path, but it was all about action orientation. And you had this humility to say, resource me, but you had the courage to say, don't take advantage of me. You created optionality. Optionality was important. So when you're ask, answer, act, framework. If there's no action, 
You're just a student watching. I love that. And we need to feed optionality because asking and answering implies humbly, humbly implies others are there and they're part of the journey. You know, your mom did the right thing. You then had a moment in your life. You said, I will do the right thing. So let us not forget in moments of profitability and urgency and speed about doing the right thing, but also in a crisis and you felt the mama bear energy of your franchisees or your daughter, limits do show you what you're capable of, but not everyone navigates change the same way, but you have to navigate change one way or the other. So figuring out who navigates it, how, chaos is some people's jam, love that line. You've got one line after another, but most importantly, the magic happens with the consumer. The magic happens with the frontline employee. And if you build a culture obsessively focused on the customer and the employee, then you'll have a journey that will be very successful. I know you don't like too many compliments, but we could all think about a little humility and a lot of courage leads to amazing things. Those crooked lines create a straight path. So thank you very much for showing us navigating crooked lines and maybe following a few straight paths. Fantastic discussion. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Kat. Great to talk to you. Thank you both. Are you ready to fast-track progress on gender equality at the highest levels of your organization? In her new book, To the Top, How Women in Corporate Leadership Are Rewriting the Rules for Success, accomplished leadership advisor Jenna C. Fisher reveals why we face a once-in-a-generation opportunity to close the gender gap at the top of organizations today and how to do it. Combining cutting-edge research and the stories of powerful women executives who've already made it, the book explores how the world of leadership is changing and why this opens new opportunities on the path to parity, why women are well-suited to lead companies through the complex challenges facing our world, and what companies can do to actively attract, retain, and elevate women leaders in their ranks for the benefit of our society, economies, and yes, our businesses. To order your copy of To The Top, visit russellreynolds.com slash to the top. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Redefiners. For more dynamic insights from leaders from across industries and around the world, listen to Redefiners wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more or get in contact with us, visit our website at russellreynolds.com. Find us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at RA on Leadership. See you next time.